Well, hello, Mouth of the South podcast. Want to welcome you to our very first episode. We're excited to really get to jump into some cases, some current events. We're not just going to do cases, but we got uh, originally we were going to, I think we decided we were going to kind of rehash the Greg Kelly case, but we've got something really exciting today because we, we've got a, a case that's very time sensitive that needs our involvement right away. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I'm going to quickly introduce you to my co-host here. We got Michael Apaglia. We got Mark Gillespie, who is our uh, forensic uh, private investigator that's going to do the deep diving for us. And we've got the Wolf of Wilco also known as Jesse Mahan, that uh, may or may not have threatened uh, the Cedar Park uh, City Council easy, in the last easy. City Council meeting. No, 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 easy. <laughs> he claims he didn't, uh, but, that, you know, there's a lot of people that think that he might have some indirectly. We don't want to draw attention to that right we now. We don't want to draw attention to that. And we're going to talk about the hard stuff. We're going to talk about stuff that a lot of people don't want to talk about. And I got the name Mouth of the South uh, from my grandfather growing up because... I, you know, I talked a lot of shit, really, is the main reason. And it was always a negative thing. It was never something positive in my life. And my dad told Greg whenever, uh, right before he got exonerated, that that was my nickname. And when he said that the day he was being exonerated in his uh, speech to Judge King and to the courtroom, I thought, you know, I might, I might want to own that. I might want to run with that because uh, it's my mouth has gotten me in a lot of trouble in my life, no doubt about it. But if, if it, it's also a weapon, right, and it can be used uh, in a way to to bring value to people's lives and and quite possibly save somebody's life. And so that's why we started this podcast. We want to actively change the outcome of injustice. In, in our society, whether that be in criminal cases or that be like things that we're seeing on the news right now that we're not okay with, you yeah. know, anti-law enforcement, stuff like that. And so that's what you're going to see on this show. And the very first case that we're going to look at, I'm going to just give you a full disclaimer. If you thought there was injustice in the Greg Kelly case, you're going you're gonna to hate this because um, this thing is is is. I would say a grotesque miscarriage of justice. I think Sean Dick said the Greg Kelly case was wholly deficient, <laughs> which was a was a nice way to say it. Uh, and this is, in my opinion, way worse than it's that. It's another level. It's another level. Guy Hines Jr. All right, this is the first case that I think that we should really take a look at. Um, I got message from his. I guess it's his girlfriend. Look, basically, they start a relationship after his conviction. She's been fighting for his um, story to be heard. She messaged me on Facebook, and initially, it was, you know, it was a hard pass for me, be just because. Basically, thousand foot view. I know Mark's going to tell us more about this in a second, but eight of his family members got beaten to death, right? And I just found it hard to believe that you could win a case like that without some some actual evidence and from the little bit of looking at it that i did they invited me to this facebook group so i looked into it a little bit and i was like oh my god the greg kelly case was really bad as far as police incompetence goes but this case is probably worse wow and this guy has spent 10 years in prison um for murdering eight of his family members and from what I've seen, I don't see how he could have possibly done it. Let's take reasonable doubt off the table. I don't see how he could have possibly pulled this off. And Mark, I know you've done a little more research on it than I have. What What do you know about this case? Yeah, I did a little research this morning after I spoke with you, and you know, eight eight family members were killed. They were bludgeoned. Um, one of the victims, a ninth victim was uh, a three-year-old toddler and that person survived but I understand has some pretty traumatic injuries to this day um, basically this case involved very little if any evidence that was used against him uh, the district attorney basically relied on circumstantial evidence to prove the case I think basically they they had their guns set on 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 guy from the start you know he allegedly came home in, uh, after spending a night out came home about eight o'clock in the morning wearing a pair of uh, shorts gym shorts underneath 
went into his trailer, found all his family, just a, a, a bloody scene. And um, one, of, one of the guys was alive, one of his relatives was alive, a guy by the name of Toller. He immediately went to console him, to, he laid next to him, he held him, and he called 911, and he was frantically... Who urged, does that? Who, who calls... Well, that's going to... Calls help that's for gonna, a murder victim. That's going to play key into this, because uh, that's an excellent point. So he calls 911, tell them to get their butts here and get here fast, because this guy needs help. And um, uh, Toller ended up living for the next two days. Um, did he say anything? He, he, to my knowledge, he did not say anything. Mm. He was just severely damaged. But the interesting thing when they when they when they processed the crime scene, they said that uh, there was there was so much blood, so much blood spatter everywhere that that you couldn't have gone in and out without getting blood on you. He only had. Guy only had a, a a small amount of blood on the outside of his shorts, and he had some blood on the inside of his uh, of the shorts he was wearing that were that were gym shorts. If he were to commit this crime, bludgeon eight nine family members with with a, a, a blunt instrument, he would have been he literally would have been showered. In blood spatter. It, sure. It, and, and this is in South Georgia, Glenn County, Georgia? Correct. The police, you know, first of all, he calls 911. He reports the scene. He was seen shortly after his arrival by a neighbor that can vouch and testify what he was wearing, what he looked like, and he was not covered in blood. He was not. He, he was a normal-looking guy. And um, but, but apparently that, that did not mean anything when it went to trial. Um, when the police investigated it, they... They mishandled the crime scene. They contaminated evidence by placing a, 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 a tremendous amount of blood evidence, dripping wet evidence in the bathtub, uh, commingling all the evidence. They still didn't have any evidence. They did not have any evidence that, that, that really put him, as I understand it, him at the crime scene. What they, they had a, they were able to recover blood prints from the headboard and the frame that they even mishandled how they asked for that to be analyzed, but none of it came back to to Guy. And it's interesting to note that when they submitted it to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation lab, they even told the lab um, that they, 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 were, they were trying, as I understand it, they were trying to rule, um, they, they were trying to make sure that that evidence did not match anyone, any of the other victims. Uh, so it was it was a, a very flawed investigation. One of the officers, Officer Owens, even had a a crucial piece of evidence, blood a, a blood stained piece of evidence, article of clothing that he kept in his trunk of his vehicle. Didn't turn it in for the next 18 to 24 hours. Well, we we knew about the problems with crime scene investigations back when O.J. came out in 1994, 95, when we witnessed on television. You know, LAPD cops, you know, Van Adder, CSI Fung placing evidence in the back of a, a vehicle. And uh, so that created a lot of problems for OJ's, OJ's case. But uh, it, what I'm trying to point out is that you have a piece of crucial evidence that was mishandled by the law enforcement. And also this law enforcement, uh, this officer, Officer Owens, has a history of mishandling evidence in other cases. He's also been the subject of a number of internal affairs investigations because of his improper investigative methods. I jumped into it and uh, looked it up on what else than uh, murder, Murderpedia. And um, that's a thing. There's yeah, a Murderpedia. There's a Murderpedia. So, uh, jumping on Murderpedia, it really outlines. Um, I mean, right away, mass murder killed the first uh, victim in a dispute over a bottle of prescription painkillers he wanted to steal. So apparently, Michael Toller had a prescription for Darvacet, and that was the prosecution's uh, theory that he was going to get those painkillers one way or another. Now, Michael Michael he, Toller has Down syndrome. Um, he was impaired in some. I'm not positive. I think he had Down syndrome. Yeah, he's. He, but he definitely had a prescription, and the theory is that he, uh, guy, came into the situation on drugs, 
um, under the influence of drugs and that he murdered for the drugs and then he murdered everyone else to cover up the fact. Now, also, it has a victim's profile and it runs through that his he killed his father, 45 years old, Rusty Toller Sr., 44 years old, his four children, Chrissy Toller, 22, Russell D. Toller Jr., 20. So these aren't, what, I, what I'm getting at is these aren't like kids that he's killing. Right. These, these are grown adults. So, so the story that the state's trying to sell, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the story that the state is trying to sell is that this guy came home. Drug-fueled. Drug-fueled fury. And goes complete Jason Bourne on this house, and on his family. somehow his family. kills, beats to death everybody, eight people, including a, a three-year-old young man with Down syndrome. Uh, th- is that the guy that he laid in bed and consoled? Yes. Okay, yes. so correct. So he so he comes in, he beats the shit out of everybody, right, and kills seven of the eight. Calls nine one one and says, "My whole family." Then is dead. runs outside. Talks to a neighbor Calls and tells them to call 911. Comes back inside, lays down with Toller, and and basically consoles him through the dying process. Or well, I guess he lived for two days, so he just goes through that. He's he's heard on multiple 911 tapes of yelling for help. He's got, and he does all of this with without an injury, n- without an injury, very and little with, blood, and with and with no physical evidence no tying him to this stuff and then and then the state has to then say hey we're gonna we're gonna try this case on circumstantial evidence because there's no physical evidence tying guy to the crime scene when he beat eight people to death that's exactly that's the story they sold well, to a jury okay and let's back up I read that they initially charged him with tampering of, with evidence and they charged him with, was it a drug charge? Yes, um, there is something about the drug. So they, the drug, the drug charges, a felony and a misdemeanor arose from the prescription painkillers and a small amount of marijuana. Police found that morning in the car Hines was driving. So they uh, had initially, so he, he so they had him, they had him on five years on a felony just for the drugs that he had in the car when he showed up. So they already had him; they were already in a place of power over him. So you witness, you witness your family. You come home. Now, granted, he didn't claim to be an angel. He was out partying. He was doing drugs. He smoked weed. He was doing crack. Smoking crack. He went for breakfast, you know, partying all night, comes home, and he witnesses his family murdered completely, you know, and eight people. Apparently, okay, here's another thing, Mike. He he was very forthcoming with all this. He, he, let, he let the investigators know that he'd been high on crack all night and that he was actually coming by to get pills because he was wanted to come down. He had the intention of going and getting Michael's pills and he let everybody know that. Well, they used that against him and said to no, shape that, their story. That, but that's, that's far that's, from a motive to murder your whole family. That's so, far from a motive. So let's let, well, let's say it's an accurate motive. Not to interrupt, but just let's say that that's a motive. Okay, let's say that that if you wanted pills that bad, if you're that addicted, I've never been a drug addict. I well, don't he know. could have been that addicted. Let's, let's say he was. All right. Let's talk about how you pull off you, you, you get your murdering you eight asking. freaking people with your bare hands. Let's put this in perspective, guys. We all have families, big families. We have extended families. We get together for cookouts, sure. so on and so forth. Can you imagine a 21-year-old, 22-year-old coming into your house with two grown men, several children, a couple women, and then one person being able to take out all eight or nine members of your family no. without putting a scratch on this person maybe one and or with two. nobody escaping right because I'm, I'm sitting here thinking okay he just whip, whipped uncle johnny's ass okay now he's working through dad <laughs> i'm out of here i'm not sticking around to find out what i don't mean that. to laugh but no no i'm no no the, it's comical the story yeah and and that's why Part of this show is we want to look into a case like this, but part of this is like we have to educate jurors, potential jurors, people, right? Because we're all potential jurors. Like, you need to make the state prove their case. And you could have a really good um, movie, but if this was the plot line, I'm not watching the movie. There's no way this guy could block the door to where nobody could run. Well, keep in mind that this isn't a mobile home. 
<laughs> this is in a mobile home. A 900 square foot mobile home. A 900 yeah. square foot I mobile home. It's a single wide. 10 people this live in there. And, and nobody doors. grabs a knife and sticks it in his back. There's, and nobody. A, so I mean, nobody got out the door. So you can automatically kind of just surmise that there was more than two people involved in this. To me, I would think that you would have had to have somebody blocking the door. You almost, you had to have you two had people. You had to have two people. At, at least. If not three. I wouldn't be surprised if this wasn't five people. Yeah. Right. The was there a lock on the outside where he could have locked them in? No, it doesn't say anything about yeah, that. I don't know. How 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 well can you secure a mobile home? I mean, they're right. You can there bust out. You severe can head out. injuries. Uh, everybody died from severe head injuries. Everybody was popped in the head. So times. I read up a little bit on it too, and then where this goes is they arrest him on tampering with evidence, uh, drug charge. They. How long was he in? He had a $20,000 bond. That's another thing. So there was a four years from the date of arrest to his conviction. And that's kind of struck me. Like, why does it take four years to go to trial on any trial? The reason, the reason that I almost passed on this case was because it was unbelievable to me that somebody could be convicted um, of a crime like this and not have any involvement. Now, here's the other thing, right? So basically, I look at it like this. If you're watching this podcast and you're going, okay, time out. There's a lot of holes in this story. But basically, one of two things happened. Either, either this guy was trained by the United States government to you know, murder people with his hands and then have the wherewithal to go withstand 16 hours of an interrogation and be able to pass a lie detector test on top of all of that and um, somehow manage to keep from leaving any physical evidence that ties him to these murders, right? So we're either dealing with a national asset or this is such a far cry from what actually happened that the more plausible explanation is that he walked into a massacre. And if that's true, then we've got a whole this case is troubling because, number one, not only did he walk into a massacre that was his own family, which is, I think, the appropriate reaction for what the neighbors described, but then he gets run through the legal system over some drugs, right? And he has to then go through all of this. And so, you know, I look at it and then, I was... Then he gets out. Then he gets released thinking, okay, I can finally go mourn my family. I can finally start working through this stuff. And then an, within an hour and a half of his release, I mean, that has to be on purpose. They're pulling him back in. They're saying, well, you're coming back in. We've charged you with eight murders. Yeah. We've charged you with the murder of all your family. And you, one of you, you know what's crazy also is that th three years later, I think, they came up with two other suspects based on comments that were, that were made and overheard. overheard. Uh, that implicated these guys, and they did not drug, follow up with Drug that. connection? Yes, as I, I believe so. But they did not follow up with that information. They just they pretty much discounted it. Well, and Mark, I think this is going to be a great opportunity to have you go to Georgia uh, on this, because obviously we're not going to solve this on this podcast. But um, You're from that area, aren't you? Alabama. Alabama. Roll Tide. One one of the things that uh, let's roll. that I thought <laughs> let's roll that one of the things that I thought was really troubling is that a neighbor called the cops several days later and reported finding bloody nunchucks. So and an east wing hammer and an east wing hammer and you know I think one of the things that so they the state's case was that he. He beat everybody to death with the barrel of a shotgun, okay? And I'm thinking, if it's one on eight, you're not going to blast a few of them? I mean, you're not going to – I mean, you're already way outnumbered. If your goal is to kill the entire family, why wouldn't you shoot? So, to me, the only thing that makes sense – I mean, just logical sense, right, is that some guys came to the house with a confrontation – and somebody from the house pulls out a shotgun. Now, we have not investigated this. We have not vetted this theory. This is just me piecing together what I know. But somebody pulls out a shotgun and says, hey, we're not doing this. And then 
the nunchucks come out, right? And if you think about an impact from a nunchuck versus the, I mean, they're very similarly shaped to a shotgun barrel. And then a, a hammer, same kind of deal, right? It's about that big around. So these guys beat this family to death, including a baby. So we got two big problems here, which is why I think this case is, is worthy of our time and very important is there's some really brutal murderers running around right now. I think it is impossible to think that guy could have done this. Well, when you put innocent people in prison, the people that did happens. it are out running loose. Yeah, We've learned loose. that firsthand. So you've got to... yeah. So, so let's get uh, let's get the brother on the phone. Yeah, he he wants because that was the first question that I asked Jody was what does the family uh, think about guy you know That's did important. they have Absolutely. Did, you know what let's what kind of guy is he did he uh and the nunchucks thing is a big thing to me we oh so, oh that, yeah thank did you. you yeah so there was a girl they found them in the there was a girl in the trailer park who how long of how long later did she find these nunchucks sitting in a tire like an old tire or i want to say it was several days later several days later I, I so can, it wasn't too much later yeah and she finds these nunchucks with blood on them and calls the local police department and she says i think you guys might want to take a look at this they say oh yeah we definitely do bring them on and they take a look and then what do they do they just kind of chunk the evidence or they throw it away they destroyed it they destroyed the evidence the nunchucks the hammer hammer. and the nunchucks were destroyed by the police they had hair on them and then they denied even speaking with her but they were able to show if i believe this is correct but they were able to show through call records that that they didn't have a conversation yes, with that's her. correct and and she's gone on record saying that and so have the neighbors and so you know There's just if you're watching this podcast right now we we just want to let the, the whole vision of this is that we bring you on this journey with us and so yep. we are not stating things as, as fact yet this is a fact-finding mission and that's the purpose of this show we were given information and we vetted that somewhat, but we're going to continue to investigate this matter and you're going to get to be a part of that with us. But yeah, as far as I know, the police were given that evidence and they destroyed it because it didn't, you know, how can a guy swing a hammer, nunchucks, and a shotgun at the same time? Mm-hmm. Clearly, he can't do that. And we don't want to distract the jury with these pesky facts that that could mean other people were involved not saying that that excludes guy but it destroys the state's case against him being this lone assassin that then could again and this is what troubles me the most i think about all of this and why i decided to bring it to you guys and bring it on the show was i don't think an untrained person and by training, I'm talking your kind of training or military training of some sort, um, really high-level shit, right? I don't think an untrained person has the ability to murder eight people, beat them to death, and then have the wherewithal to go deny any involvement. Well, yeah, and call, and then call 911, right? Render aid in, in that case and then have the wherewithal to go withstand 16 hours of interrogation and deny any involvement at all. I would think that if somebody had done something like that, they would say, well, my whole family was trying to kill me and I defended myself. Like they would have, they typically would plead to a lesser, right? And say, yeah, I did this, but I didn't do this. And there was other guys that helped me, but they left. And Absolutely. Try to, try to you know, dissipate the blame. But for 10 years, this man has denied any involvement whatsoever. And if he had murdered eight people in his family with his bare hands, he's got to know there's evidence that proves his guilt. What murderer would go through the trouble of bludgeoning nine people and let one live and pick up the phone, call 911, and frantically tell him trying to, to, save to that. get here? Trying to, trying save, to save the guy. It yeah. doesn't fit. Right. Absolutely not. Yeah, I would think, you know, that most people in that situation would light that some bitch on fire exactly. and burn it to the ground and, so the, and leave. I well, think, at that point, it's a it's a nuisance. You already have your case. They right. Had, they had their man. You got it. You already have your you case. It. Now we got to start over and look at these. Let's get rid of that evidence. If you're afraid of the answer, don't ask the question. And I think that that's what we're going to find as we dive into more of these cases is that... Um, 
I think there is a percentage of law enforcement, uh, there is a percentage of district attorneys out there that they view their job as uh, almost like a salesman, right? I don't care if it's the right car for you. I don't. I just want to sell a car. Clinch the deal. Yeah. So the goal is successful prosecution. Right. Wait, right. So looking at some of these victims, I was just reading some bios on the victims, and I found some interesting stuff that I thought you guys would like to hear. So um, Chrissy Toller, one of the victims, she was 22 uh, when she was murdered. She had had uh, quite a few run-ins with the law. She had also um, she had arm robbed. Um, a couple of men she had promised sex and prostitution prop- propositioned herself as a prostitute and then she would arm rob them so you start thinking about oh, this is one of the victims this is one of the victims so you start thinking about people like this and and that are running these type of scams what they're and, involved and with what they're involved with oh, and, I'm what, sure. and what and what it attracts so just give you a heads up. There's not not everybody's innocent. In no, of course, even, no. We're the, even, the, even the victims aren't. We're innocent. not claiming this is an angel family. Oh, yeah. This so, is backwoods Georgia. Yeah. The, one so, of the family members is involved with drugs. No, nobody has a job in the mobile home. Out of all nine of them, nobody had a job. Um, it's a mess. It's a, it's kind of a mess. So as we go down this rabbit hole, I'm sure we're going to find out a lot more, and we're going to see some. Well, let me some, call Tyler, the brother, because he's he's ready to go. While he's doing it, let me just say this: you bring up an excellent point, Jesse, because a, a, a key methodology, proto- investigative protocol in any case like this is what we call victimology. They've got to do a deep dive on every single victim every reason to see who they're involved with what Motive. their past is exactly. what their history is you know because it that could tell a, you, a, a very you got terrible a woman story. yeah you got a woman ripping off men yeah. uh in in a prostitution sting and robbing them arm robbing them so um it's right it can get ugly real quick okay i'm gonna call tyler here do how do y'all hear yeah we can hear it Tyler, how you doing? It's Jake Bryden with Mouth of the South. How you doing, sir? Man, we are calling. We we have started an investigation into your brother's case. And uh and man, we want to talk to you a little bit because we're this is new to us. It sounds very egregious um and unbelievable, quite frankly, the the story that the state told to the jury about your brother. But help us bring our viewers into your brother and who he is as a person, uh, what he meant to your family, and just just give us a little background on him. Well, basically, my brother is my only sibling. We don't have any other siblings. And back in 2004, we lost our mom. So we, we've always been close since we were young. We're six years apart, but like we always hung out together. And so in 2009, August 29, 2009, well, August 28th, me and my friends threw a party, and that morning, after the party, my brother, he left, he'd been, like, in and out, he came back and forth a few times, well, that morning, he went back to the house, and he found, basically, most of our family beaten to death, our biological father, and then my uncle, my aunt, four of my cousins, my cousin's baby daddy, and my cousin's baby, which he ended up living, the baby's still alive, but he had to have like rehab to speak and walk again. But yeah, he found them all beat to death, and the police just zeroed in for my brother from the very instant that this all happened. Like, they didn't try to find any other suspects. They took me to the police station that day, took him to the police station that day, asking us questions, asking me, is there any way my brother could have did this? Did I have something to do with it? Did I have an alibi? And it was just like crazy how fast it happened, and they they charged my brother with the murders. They said he was they were for certain that only one person did this, beat all of these people to death. Nobody got shot, beat all these people to death by by themselves or by himself. And nobody and escaped, right? Nobody, nobody escaped got away. the crime scene. No, the neighbors didn't hear nothing and report anything. Like it was just crazy how it happened. And when this is all coming into me, you know, I'm only 16 at the time, but. I'd already been through losing my mom, and me and my brother had always been close. Like, there was never a thought in my mind, like, oh, my brother's violent, you know, this, you know, this is probably him, you know, my dad and my brother were mad at each other, he probably did this. There was no thoughts like that that crossed so my mind. So your dad and your brother, did they have a good relationship? 
Yes, better better than me and my dad did because my dad and my brother spent more time together because my dad and my mom were married when my more of my brother's life. My dad and my mom split up when I was three. But my brother growing up, he was in the household with my dad and my mom. And so my Let dad me ask and my you this, were, man. If, if your dad and your brother were going to get into a fight, okay, who do you think would win that fight? I mean, I think my brother would win if they got in a fight. Okay. My so dad was, you, was, like, tall and lanky. Okay. But was your dad somebody that could defend himself, or was he pretty helpless? Yes, yes. My dad, my Uncle Rusty, and my cousin Junior, they were all country boys, like scrappers. You know, you're not going to beat any one of them up single-handedly without a good fight. So there's and no – so there's no you, – you don't think there's any way your brother could have could have taken them all at the same time? I don't think there's any way any man in the world could have walked in there and beaten all of those people and came out without a scratch. It would be different if he had wounds all over him, he was bleeding, he was busted up. But my brother made the 911 call. He's the one who reported the bodies. And in the 911 call, he's saying, Michael's still alive. Yeah. He's still alive. Michael was still breathing. He was telling the police to get there. If you just walked in and killed everybody, you're not going to try to save somebody who can identify No, you're you. going to light that joker on fire and be done with it and try to get away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whose shotgun was found at the scene of the crime? There was two shotguns there, and there was a big to-do that my brother moved one of the shotguns. Well, one of the shotguns that was there, my brother had bought from a guy named Low-Key. It was a stolen shotgun. And there Well, was that's the point there. I'm trying to make. So the shotguns that were found there, so the shotguns one that were found there, uncle. so they were, stolen, they were the victim's shotguns. shotguns. So, so they were the victim's shotguns. One was your brother's shotgun. The other one was the victim's shotgun. So... You know, the, the thing that I'm working on, the theory that I'm working on is that some guys came to the house. Um, your, your uncle and your dad probably felt threatened. They pull out the shotguns that they have at the house. And at some point, um, the guys that came to the house uh, disarmed them of those shotguns and beat them to death. Well, I, I really don't think it went anything like that. Like, we have a rap city. These guys made, these three African-Americans made a rap city bragging about killing my family. The third song on the CD is the 911 call my brother made. They play a cut of the 911 call, and then they start rapping. And, like, excuse my French, but they said word for word exactly how when they said three niggas all black kicked the door and First nigga I seen, I split his wig. We came for the money or the dope. And that's exactly how it happened. As soon as you opened the door, my dad was laying on an air mattress right there. They hit my dad one time and split his skull in half. My dad didn't get a chance to do nothing. Mm. How, do you think, like how do you think the shotguns got introduced into the equation? Where do you, where do you think well, they came from? My, my cousin and my Uncle Rusty were beat to death in the, the master bedroom, and that's where the shotguns were at. They were in the closet right there, and I assume my Uncle Rusty was probably trying to get to one sure. when he realized he was getting beat to death. What yeah. was going on? Well, yeah, and that's, that's, that's the theory that I'm working on is that – you know, the shotguns are laying in the floor from the victims. Uh, obviously, the guys that came into the house didn't bring guns with them or they would have used them. They brought uh, nunchucks and hammers and and did what they did. And then the guns were introduced by the victims. Your brother comes in the house, finds half of, I mean, eight people murdered and picks up the shotgun probably to clear the rest of the house. I mean, at that point, none of that matters, right? At that point, the only thing that matters is that you know, he's he because I would do the same. The first thing, if I walked into a house with eight people lying on the floor, the first thing I'm going to do is get a gun because I don't know if the if those people are still in the, the house or not. Still there. Right. Yeah, exactly. To exactly. me, him having grabbed that shotgun um, is a good sign because that means he's looking for somebody. Right. Uh, he doesn't know what happened. And then everything that happened after that, with him going outside and telling the neighbors to call 911, him going back and laying down with Toller and consoling. Is that is that his name, Toller? Toller. Uh, Toller. Michael Toller. Yeah, Michael Toller. Hey. So laying down with him. And, uh, you know, everything makes sense to what your brother's claiming has happened, which is that he walked into to a brutal crime scene. Hey, Toller, Jesse here. I want to jump in. Tell me a little bit more about this rap CD. Tell me about these guys. Tell me about um, who these guys are. These, well, this lady that was helping us with the case like a couple of years ago, she said that she had identified who these people were and that she had found a way to go talk to them. Well, she started making this fundraiser and was like secretly trying to raise money on my brother's name and make money off my brother. Is this, so uh, we, is this Tragedies of New Hope or no? 
no, no. Okay. no. The, uh, it was the other Facebook page that we had fighting. It was like, Guy Hines Jr. is innocent. That what's, was what the other Facebook name? page that we had had, and we were all together on it. What's, her, lady, what, what's her name, Tyler? Her name is Okay. She, she started trying to raise money and, like, wasn't telling anybody about it. And we found found out about it. And then other people contacted us and said that she had been on other cold cases where the family had actually kicked her off because she was doing little shady things on the side. But this lady had us believing that she had identified these people and that she could talk to them. Wow. But we never actually got the full names of these people. What we know in truth from my uncle and other people in the drug world is that Joe was getting drugs from a guy named McIntosh County. And was a very big crack and heroin dealer. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And these people were supposedly gang members that were associated with him. Mm-hmm. And these are the people that, in my mind, I believe committed the murders. But I have no proof of that. I have no... It just makes sense, though, that, you know, these people were so brutally beaten... And nobody in that house was really doing anything that would bring that kind of hell on everyone. You know, Joe was selling crack, so maybe so. My cousin Chrissy, she was doing, she was an informant. She was being an undercover informant in some police operations. So, you know, those things are in the play there. Yeah, well, I was kind of reading about Chrissy a little bit and about some of her history, and it did it did raise some questions uh, concerning the prostitution and so on. Uh, but going back, I did a, I just did a quick search for um, that rap CD, and there's actually a 12-minute video. I haven't seen it yet, but there's a 12-minute video online concerning... Uh, On the Facebook page, I, I, I put the CD out there because people were like, we want to hear it. Is that and, you? And, is that you in that 12-minute yeah, yeah, video? Rap yeah, CD we related to Guy Hines? Yeah, and I was like trying to explain to people. Some people don't understand the slang, but I listen to rap music. I understand every word clear as day. And in the other songs they're talking about, we put Brunswick on the map, but we did it the wrong way. Yeah, like, so they're, they're bragging point, about it. They're bragging about yeah, it, straight up. They're bragging about it. And, and like I said, in the other song that actually has the 911 call as the chorus, so you can't dispute that it's not related to this. It has, it's, wait, wait, wait. It's all black. Yeah, uh, we talked about that. Yeah, it, the money or the dope. it has the 911 call in the chorus. Yeah, that is the chorus of the song. It has the guy's 911 yes. call? Yes, the recorded 911 call yes. in the chorus of so the you rap got song. These guys, you got these guys bragging about it, and these, these prosecutors aren't even opening up their when eyes. When did they produce that? What year was that produced? We had this CD before my brother ever went to trial. My brother's state-appointed lawyers knew about this, and they told us that they thought they had the case won on the fact that the police didn't collect evidence. On the fact that there was no things. evidence. And they had us convinced that that was that was enough to get my brother out of prison or out of It should have been. It absolutely should have been. That's state of counted it's state appointed attorney or not. They they shouldn't have been able to win this case. Was that not admissible? The song? Did they not did they not bring no, they this up in the trial? They tried to introduce that. Like there was so much stuff that they just like put to the side. Oh, sounds you know, familiar. Like the shotgun. The whole scope of the shotgun, people made such a big deal about the shotgun because the prosecution tried to paint it like this was the murder weapon. No, this that shotgun had no blood on it. The the forensic investigators testified the marks on the bodies were like two side by side train track marks. You could see signs where a hammer was used. Like these nunchucks and these hammers match the marks and then on the, the body. And then the correct me if I'm wrong, but then the police destroyed that evidence. That it was it was never accounted for. Mike Owens was the guy that collected one of the pieces of evidence, and he testified in court. But he had been released from the Glen County Police Department at that time, and all he had to say on the stand, they asked him why was he no longer with the police department, and he said health reasons. And then that day after court, I'll never forget this as long as I live. Me and my grandma are sitting in the truck, and. I said, Grandma, look, look, keep in mind, Mike Owens is 250-pound, maybe 300-pound man. He's sitting in this truck, his dually, S350, crying. And I can hear Marissa, Captain Marissa Tyndale patting him on the shoulder. She's saying, it'll be all right, Mike. It'll be all right, Mike. And there's only a few reasons that man was crying. And he's dead now, bless his soul. He's dead now. But if you go back to Mike Owens' Facebook page, the whole last four years of his life is nothing but talking about the Glen County Police Department stabbed him in the back, the brothers that he gave his oath and his life to, they did him wrong. And that was the lead investigator, right? Was that the lead investigator that did that was the six? Guys that interviewed my brother. I, I think that, uh, Lieutenant Darius was the lead investigator. And his son came forward and said that with his last dying breath, he said your brother was a hundred percent innocent. Yes, 
Okay. So, wow. So, the, so you got the one of the investigators in the case that actually interviewed a guy for 16 hours. Um, you know, went 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 to his deathbed saying he didn't do this. Clearly, so, he didn't do Tyler, this. Tyler, tell me a little bit about the legal defense. Um, did your did your brother your brother went through numerous court appointed attorneys or just one court court appointed attorney? Tell me about his legal defense and how you felt about that. When this all started, we had like a private attorney that knew my girlfriend at the time's mother, but. At that time, my brother hadn't been charged with the murders in the very beginning. And then when the murder charges came out eight days later, I think they quoted as saying it would be like $1.2 million to represent him. And nobody could afford innocence that. So is, innocence I, is expensive. Yeah. Good Lord. Wow. <laughs> Hell yeah, it is. Even the cheapest, the cheapest quote I think we got for the trial was like $580,000. Wow. So we got the court-appointed attorney, which knew Hamilton. I got a guy out of prison Harper, for less than that. Um... Yeah. There was like two other people. Sounds they like a bargain like now. Pretty good people. But after this all happened and everything came out, it came out that Newell had already been disbarred one time for alcohol abuse. And none of us knew that. Yeah, yeah. ask him, who is this DA? We need to get this guy on our radar. This is... Uh, DA, that was my brother's private attorney. The DA is Jackie Johnson. Jackie Johnson was the same Oh, Jackie person. Johnson. She's up for, uh, she's up for re-election. Is she? That's the same lady who didn't recuse herself on the Ahmaud Avery case. After Ahmaud Avery got shot, she was supposed to recuse herself because the, one of the guys that shot Ahmaud Avery, Travis McMichael, and the other McMichael, that McMichael was one of her lead investigators for years on many cases. Well, he wasn't even deputized to be a police officer since 2010. And he, Jackie Johnson had him working on cases. He was out in there working on cases for Jackie Johnson, and he wasn't even a deputy. Okay, so we need to look into Jackie officer. Johnson, Mark. Did you say Jackie Johnson is up for re-election right now? Yes, yes, she is. Thinking, everybody's You're kidding me. Right now. She's the next... Who's her, hey, who's her opponent? Keith Higgins. He, that's her opponent is Keith Higgins. Okay. I like and the way that... There's, there's yeah, that's going to work out. I like the way that goes. You look up Jackie Johnson's misdeeds. It's a whole Facebook page that the backseat informer made about her and all these cases where people... We've run that play before. <laughs> she railroaded them. She lied. She hid evidence. And in the beginning, the judge of my brother's case was Amanda Williams. She got thrown off the bench. That was originally going to be my brother's judge, Amanda Williams. But she got thrown off the bench because her son was a lawyer and she was ruling favorable judgments in his cases. This is some backwoods. Well, we have to, just just for full disclosure here, we have to verify. Uh, this is Tyler stating his opinion. We obviously have to verify a lot of this stuff. And so we're not. Yeah, look it up. Yeah, we're. <laughs> No, I hear you, brother. I'm just trying to keep from getting sued in the process. There's so much interwoven corruption in this. Like, I find out more and more stuff every couple weeks. Jody, she's found out so much stuff. Yeah, Jody's Jody's digging for sure. Like, there's so many people that keep coming with new things that they've heard, new things about this case, and then people about Jackie Johnson. And the district attorney, John B. Johnson, he was the the, attorney, the lead DA under Jackie Johnson. She was the lead DA, and then John B. Johnson. If you, you have, I don't know if I've got to watch the documentary yet, but he's in the documentary talking about he's never lost a death penalty case. He was going to be a preacher, but he thinks he does his preaching in the courtroom. That's what God wanted him to do. He's oh an arrogant, God! Old, he's anointed. Oh my! God. He's anointed. He's got, yeah, yeah, and he's got the Holy Ghost. The documentary, telling him he who's said in the courtroom. It's in the documentary. He said, "When you find your keys, you don't look for your keys anymore." So wow! They, they picked wow. my brother. They didn't try to find nobody. Sounds else. familiar. We've, we've heard that before. Yeah. So, so what's the status of the case right now? So, the status of the case right now is he's sitting in life in prison, right? No, yeah. death row. And, and his appeal, no, 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 he didn't. He, oh, his okay. Denied at the state level. So we're going to the Supreme Court, which I believe was still at the Georgia Supreme Court, not the federal Supreme right. Court yet. Well, he had his appeal attorney. His appeal attorney has only been able to see him one time. And after they submitted the state appeal, we got Jody, we got this guy named Daniel Alden who runs the Innocence Project out of Jacksonville, Florida. They put all of the errors together. They put all of the things that we wanted to present in my brother's appeal because the law just changed in February of this year that you don't have to just present one point. Used to, you have to present the throw, one point throw it all at them misgrievance. Yeah. We had all the listed points. My brother wrote this guy four letters, and we have those letters on Facebook, so people can see this isn't a lie, saying he wanted to speak with him. Please don't submit this appeal. We want to change my appeal. This guy did not come see him. My brother got a letter in the mail saying your appeal has been submitted and sent him the appeal that he submitted. 
with one error on it about the juror getting taken off the case. Juror number so 152? Yes. So we're trying to get, we're trying to raise money right now to get my brother a real attorney to do his appeal. We're trying to get his other appeal rescinded. We don't even want that out there. There's so much more to put in there. And it's like my brother's life hangs in the balance right here. Like if we don't get somebody who can get this appeal rescinded, get him an attorney that can file the real appeal with all the real errors that we have proof of, not just speculation, that we have proof of. My brother can lose his life right here. What's like, the, life or death. Tyler, what's the timeline on that? Is the clock the, ticking? The oral arguments for the appeal are in October. Oh, Yikes. wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Real but quick. But this guy, the, there's a paralegal guy that Jody has been talking to that said there's a law that my brother can get his appeal rescinded for ineffective counsel because we have proof that my brother reached out to this man. This man not only didn't respond to him, he didn't come see him. So this man just totally disregarded everything my brother asked him to do. All right, and so we need, uh, I'm going to talk to Keith. We need an excellent appellate lawyer that's licensed in Georgia. Georgia. Um, if you're watching this podcast and you know our guy, please message our page. Uh, the, the clock is ticking. This is a big deal. Um, I don't know Georgia law. I'm not a lawyer. But I know that some of these things can be pretty... Um, pretty crucial as time far as sensitive. as far as getting getting the right things in at the right time and so uh you're, you're watching this it's september 15th or later so we're we're on short time we need some help guys we need your help number one there's a couple ways you can help us here you can donate money we're going to post a um gofundme on on this uh podcast that you can donate to i can personally assure you that every single penny that comes into this gofundme will go to the legal defense defense of guy heinz jr none of this money is going to go to anybody it's not going to go to family or anything like that we will make sure that your money goes to hiring a great lawyer for guy heinz jr because you know at the end of the day um it's not about necessarily even what happened right it's about what can we prove didn't happen and in greg's case we saw that right where we didn't have to prove what happened we just had to show that what the state said happened Did didn't not. happen right and so um tyler man hey i want to thank you for your time we're going to stay in touch we're obviously not going to solve this in this podcast but we're going to start and we're going to get after it and we're going to do everything we can to fight for your brother. And I, I look at what you guys have been doing because I, that's what got my attention. And, man, it's very admirable. And you guys keep doing what you're doing and we're going to bring you some air support, okay? Hey, can I? Any way I can help, bro, let me know. Let me say one thing to yeah. Tyler. Tyler, this is Mark, buddy. Hey, I'm very impressed at, at what you've learned in such a short period of time. Uh, so you just keep it up, keep your hand in the pot, keep stirring it, and keep learning about the justice system. Because you know what? It, it's not just happening to your brother, but it's happening to many, many people all over the country. And people like you can help force a change. So you're very impressive. Keep up the good work, and we appreciate you. Thank you yeah, man. Tyler, Mike LaPaglia here. I just want to say, you know, when Jake and I got started in the fight for Greg Kelly, we have younger brothers and Jake and I called each other, you know, we got involved because we were close to somebody that was close to the situation. We did not know Greg Kelly, but we said to each other, what if this was one of our little brothers and you're fighting for your brother? Mm -hmm. So I just want to commend you for that. And we got your back brother. So we're going to fight for you and we're going to fight for your brother. Let's roll. I appreciate it. Guys. All right, Tyler, have a good night, sir. Thank you, sir. Well, he knows what's going on. Now, look, it's been 10 years. He's been in prison for 10 years. And so um, I would imagine with kind of the way that things rolled with Greg's case, and if you're a lawyer watching this, um, I don't even pretend to state this as fact, but the way I imagine it is this is a pretty crucial moment. You know, this we had those moments in Greg's case where even though we had a great lawyer and even though we had public support, um, it hinged on the decision that Judge King made. It right? hinged on somebody making the right. You got it. You got it. Doing and the right so thing, absolutely. Uh, you would like to think that if everybody thinks he's innocent, that at some point he's going to get out. But that's not the way that it works. The whole world can think he's innocent and... No. 
a ton of public pressure can be put on the situation, but the decision makers have to make the right decision. But the first step is making sure that they know that we're watching, that we're aware of who they are, and that we're not going to let this be swept under the rug just because this guy was doing drugs. Now, I don't condone his lifestyle, but that's that is not I think if you're watching this doesn't make show, you a murderer. It doesn't yeah, we can't we can't let that um be an excuse for terrible police work just because he's not a guy that we might want to run with doesn't mean we can convict him of eight yeah. murders. We're seeing two extremes here. In the Greg Kelly case, we saw a police department and a defense uh, a DA, a district attorney's office, want to convict a football star who had a clean record. Yeah. So they were motivated on that end of the spectrum. Hey, we can even you, you know you think this guy is squeaky Anybody clean? Can be bad. Anybody it, can be bad. Now they've got the other end of the spectrum. Hey, this guy's a drug a druggie. He's you know not ha, doesn't have much going for him. We're and, gonna and that's just how they justify it, right? right? Like at the end of the day, even though he was doing drugs, he had he had nothing on his criminal record. No assaults. No nothing. Right. So. He, as far as the law was concerned, Guy Hines was clean as well. But I love the point that you made because a lot of people ask me, if Greg Kelly wasn't the all-American, good-looking, white, which he's not even totally white, he's he's half Guatemalan, um, if he wasn't that guy, would you have done what you did for Greg? And I said, yeah. I mean, injustice... It has in, zero to do with the it, football program. Yeah, I mean, yeah. look, the bottom line is in, injustice for anyone is injustice for everyone. Like, if it doesn't work for Guy Hines Jr., it doesn't work for me. If it doesn't work for me, it doesn't work for Guy Hines Jr. And so that's why... Absolutely. I think we're all in agreement. We're going to make this our fight. Let me, let me take it a step further. Let me go beyond the police investigation, beyond the crime scene. Let's put it in the courtroom. Let's look at the jury. Mm. The jury has a responsibility to to weigh the facts, hear the facts, question the facts. And if they're confused about the case, that's, that's enough for a mistrial. But you know what? Our juries that we're seeing so many times, they go into a courtroom with the attitude guilty until proven innocent. Right. And in this particular case, they need to personalize what's going on with this defendant and 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 think if it, if my child my son like we talked a little bit ago was on trial for something like this what would we want to be hearing from the state what would we want to be hearing from the defense to to help show this this young person's innocence so you know what i think that i think the juries need to our citizens need to take their role as jurors much more seriously than they've ever taken. Yeah, don't don't think that just because you saw it that way on Matlock or Law and Order that you're going to get some grandiose, thorough investigation, some great you know um, legal defense where some lawyer's going to stand up there and fight. That ain't the way this happens, right? Yeah. This, this there is, um, you know, this is just another day at the office for a lot of these people, and. I think that's what we're going to discover in this case is that the police were very lazy. They had their guy, and anything that didn't line up with that was out. Um, like well, like we the saw DA that. said, if you found your keys, why do you need to look for them? We saw that with the nunchucks. Right. They destroyed that evidence. Yeah, because it didn't work. I mean, yeah. So I think we're all in agreement, right? We're going to make this our fight. Amen. So fight. if you're watching this podcast, just know this ain't going to be – the only thing that we do, and it's not going to be the only thing that we talk about. And this is not going to be a short-lived uh, battle. I, I committed to Greg to, to, to fight for 25 years or whenever he got out. So thankfully that that's over. But this deal is going to be very similar. Um, we're going to talk about other cases. We're going to talk about current events. We're going to do all of those kind of things. But this is a fight that we're starting, and this is a fight that we'll commit to until we see uh, justice done here. And from everything that I've seen, not only can should you not have been able to convict um, guy of his crime, I think you can prove his innocence. I think this is an actual innocence case yeah. um, that should be a lot easier to prove than even Greg's case, because I can't wrap my mind around making the state's theory work. It doesn't work. No. 
opinion. It's like it's like Pat Candelis said, who did a, such a fantastic job of producing and directing Outcry. He said everything had to go wrong for Greg to get convicted. Everything had to go wrong for him. Yeah. And it all did, right? And everything had to go right for him to be found innocent, for to him be to un- be to be undone, for him to be exonerated, and it did. Everything went right. So our prayer and our hope for Guy is that everything will go right, and it takes it takes some supernatural power getting involved in right. that. We need a Sean Dick. We need a Judge Donna King. You know, it took all of those steps for Greg, yeah. not just Jake Bryden, not just Michael Paglia, Jesse, and Mark. It took everything aligning yeah. for Greg, or he would still be sitting in pre- prison. Well, and I think that's why this case um, has made it to our attention, right? You know, that's one of the things that uh, I think people have to realize. You know, there's a lot of people that'll pray for people, there's a lot of people <laughs> that'll pray for things. Um, but at some point, we got to be the hands and feet, right? We Absolutely. Gotta, we got to do the fighting. And you know what? Communities, you set a great example, Jake, because, I mean, I didn't even know you. I didn't really know much about what was going on from the early days when Greg was arrested. But then once you started lifting the torch, showing the spear. I think the it, biggest, it, I think that what you're trying to say, Mark, the, and I didn't mean to cut you off. The biggest thing that people rally around when they see genuine passion and Jake had genuine passion because I think he really put himself in. If this was my little brother, Mm -hmm. it wasn't, you know, yes, we love coach Anderson. We loved the Anderson family. We didn't really know the Kelly family, but it was at the end of the day, if this was my little brother, how would I fight? Right. Well, you know, you and empathy, right? And Judge King said it, and her, she just—they just did a great um, piece on Judge King, and Georgetown and, View, and yeah, and she looked at it like, "What if this was my son?" And so, absolutely, this case is a little harder to do that for most people, I think, because it's hard to place yourself in a place where it's like, "Well, what if my brother was, well, you know, smoking crack?" And I think that's where we have to set that part aside and go, you know what? Listen, different strokes for different folks. But the, the key point here is that um, this is somebody's brother. We just heard it from Tyler. And he was mixed up in some stuff that he shouldn't have been involved in, but he didn't murder eight people. It's not a life sentence. It's not a life sentence. Yeah. He didn't murder eight people. And if you're watching this show, let, let me... Let me tell you your importance in this, right? The reason Greg Kelly isn't in prison today is not because of what I did. It's because of what people like you did when I did what I did, right? Had it just been me with my megaphone, you know, I could yell all day long, as Guy and his family have been doing, right? They've been doing that. And it, it doesn't matter what you say. Um, it's when people like you get involved and you share it from your social media, you share it, you, you share this content so that people and people can see your passion about it. And that's why we call them fighters, right? Fighters share. That's our deal. You can be a spectator. There's lots of spectators, but if you're a fighter, fighters share the content because that's your contribution. And I'm not sure which person it's going to be, but somebody's going to share this post and it's going to affect the right person. It's going to affect the right Keith Hampton. It's going to affect the right uh, Judge Donna King. These people found out about this case long before it got into their courtroom, right? They found out about it through social media. They found out about it through us. And so um, don't underestimate your role in this. We need your help. Just because we've done this before, it doesn't mean we can do it again and we can't do anything in our own power we don't have you guys have the power right if you guys want to make this an issue it'll be an issue if you want to make this your fight it'll be a fight also any information anybody that has right, any information them, yeah. if you know if you know any information on these other actors if you know any information if you heard anything that's what that's us. that's what get helped us. us a lot absolutely we found out all types of stuff on all the different players in the Greg Kelly case 
and we were able to uh, move on a lot of that information. A I lot guarantee of that information you, influence. somebody knows what happened. Absolutely, somebody knows the Somebody's guys that talking. did it. Somebody knows how they did they're it, and what they did it with. They're, they're talking about it and in when rap they videos. did. Well, so. there, there's a local kid that shared. He has a YouTube video about the rap song. I yep. saw it today. I believe that that's Tyler. Is that Tyler? Yeah, I believe yeah. that's Tyler. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And you know what? I'd, I would love the opportunity to go there, talk to people. and We're going to send you. Pick and their brains. I'm going to send you and Gus in the airplane um, to Georgia, and we're going to film that. And I want you to go dig into this in, 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 a, in a way that makes them uncomfortable, specifically this Jackie Johnson. Is that her name, Jackie Johnson? Yeah, yeah get in front of the Jackie DA. Johnson, we're, we're going we're gonna to dig, Jackie. We're going to dig, and, and we're going to find out what's going on. And, and then we need to know who these police officers are. Because if you look at, uh, not to keep bringing this up, but if you look at the, the smash route that we ran on Cedar Park Police Department, none of those guys are left anymore, right? And so if you were a part of this malicious prosecution, then uh, just know, just know your, your days are numbered as far as your job is concerned. And we're going to make sure that there's accountability because if this can happen to Guy, this could happen to me. And that's unacceptable to me. Absolutely. Right. We're going to we're going to fight this as a proxy battle so that I don't have to deal with people like you one day personally. Absolutely. Darkness comes to light. And we're coming for you. Yeah, turn the lights on, man. We got to turn the lights on in Georgia. What city is this? Savannah, uh, Brunswick. Brunswick. Brunswick, Georgia. Brunswick, Georgia. Is that on the coast? Where is that? I'm not sure where it is. Yeah, but if you want to get it, Jackie Johnson, you can get her at 912-554-7200. Jackie Johnson. We just gave out her number. What yeah. is the number again? 912-554-7200. Hey, Jackie. All right. share. Fighters share. We got Jackie Johnson's information. Mark, you got anything else on this case? You ready to dive into it? You know what I say. Let's roll. Let's roll, baby. Let's, Let's roll. roll. All right. Well, that's what we are starting this fight for Guy Hines Jr. We hope that you will be involved in it. And that's all we got for the Mouth of the South podcast today. We're out.